our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So, Zach, uh, before we get into today, today's topic today, because you know we got a, we got a special guest, um, I just wanted to sort of see what's going on. How you been? Doing pretty good, thanks. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, we're we're at this. You're sort always of, just doing pretty good. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, listeners, if you really, really, really want to know, let us know, and and I can give you the deep insight. I would say, uh, for for those in the uh, who really do want to know, it's it's uh, we're going through teething with our son, so it's always. Oh fun. yeah, that's fine. We can move on. No yeah, one wants to hear exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> no one wants to know what whiskey I'm giving him to deal with his uh, to deal with his. Are you really? No. <laughs> we talked about that's it. a thing though right well i think it's one of those it's like thing, right? it's definitely a thing that people used to do i don't think i think it's not so commonly uh done although i'm sure there are still people who do it we definitely are not afraid of alcohol Ooh. in our house but uh but definitely we don't uh we don't i'm actually them. curious if there's any listeners who've done it like shoot us an email at podcast at vinepair.com and let me know like if if you've used whiskey with teething children that's an interesting like yeah, because it's like out of fashion now, right? It's like not okay. Oh yeah, I mean, you should see. You know, it's one of the really interesting things about about having had a, a child, and and this isn't the topic for the uh, episode, and I don't feel super qualified to talk about it. But but people are so weirdly concerned with anything involving alcohol and pregnancy, alcohol and n- newborns. It is uh, it is really mind blowing to me that that people are so concerned you know i mean yes alcohol is a powerful substance and as we talk about on this show a lot you know it's important to be responsible and obviously small children are not the people who should be having you know much in the way of any of uh, any alcohol but it's not like it's not poison you know not in the sense that people sometimes treat it and it's like this like oh my god you know to to a woman who's you know who's nursing oh you had a drop of alcohol how dare you nurse or how dare you you know do whatever it's just it is it is insane. It's a it's a product of our country's kind of bizarre um, fear of alcohol. That puritanical is, culture. Yeah, it, it's just. It, but it's also it's based in. That's what you call it. Yeah, it was not, <laughs> but it's it's weird because it's both this combination of puritanism and also sort of people not understanding how these substances work in any tangible way. And it's like you know, it's I guess maybe it is connected to the puritanism, but this idea that that you know one drink is the same as being an alcoholic to some people is just like it is it is weird and confusing and fortunately i think not right. a, not a sentiment that you or i or probably people listening to this podcast share but it is out there and it's it's ambient anyhow how are things with you good man <laughs> sorry i was a big shift um, but you know i don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far uh less less stressed than i was the last time we talked because the the print magazine is off to the printer oh man um, when is it when is that uh when is that available for people to get their hands on uh, probably the end of May or the first week of June. The launch party will be here in New York on June fourth. Oh, where's my um, invite, Adam? You're, I, you were going to get it, but I didn't know if you were going to fly from Seattle. <laughs> well, we can talk about that. There are plans. I can get there. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that's that's basically you know it's being printed in Iceland, which is crazy. Oh. And then uh, and then it'll get shipped over to us. We should have it like uh, around the fifteenth or sixteenth of May. They've told us. Nice. And then, yeah, man, it's just like gravy. Let's do this. That's very print, cool. We're, we're going into print. Other people are getting out of print. I'm yeah. real excited about it. I I appreciate the like reverse trend uh, positioning or whatever. Like start yeah. start digital, go print. Cool. That's fun. And there's there's actually a really interesting article in the print publication uh, about kids in brewery tap rooms and saying ah. kind of idea of like there's people who are have very strong opinions on either side of whether or not that's appropriate. 
Well, we definitely take our son to tap rooms, so we're we're definitely I strongly have to, right? Well, I mean, what else cats are you going to do? Cats, uh, cats already in the room uh, in the studio, and she's already giving a thumbs up for for you. Uh, we take the dog. The we take the we take the son. We the dog I can support, yeah. but the kid. Oh, the only really? the only thing I have a quite, well, I'm fine with the kid as long as so. I I totally I think it's a I think it's fine. Um, I think that like the article I agree with the article in that the you know public tap rooms have a history of you know being a place of congregation, whether it was uh, families or you know people getting together to host meetings or whatever. So I, I support that, and I think that actually. I think breweries are smart to support. I think, you know, if they were trying to restrict people bringing their kids, especially during the day at night, maybe not as much because it can get rowdier. The only thing that like the only criticism we've ever heard from the other side of the argument uh, is that people do still want it to be recognized as a bar. Mm -hmm. So therefore like the behavior of the bar, like you can't get mad at someone if they use a curse word or if they, you know, are telling a story that's a little raunchier than they might in, you know, I don't know, a McDonald's. Maybe yeah. people do do that in McDonald's. I'm trying to, you know, like a McDonald's play place. I don't know. Where would you be? Or just, you know, in general public, like in sure. the park, right? Like if, so that's, I think, the only criticism we've ever heard of people saying, like, this is why, you know, I don't like kids at the tap room because, like, I cursed one time and a parent yelled at me and that was really annoying because I'm here with my friends having drinks and I, you know, said shit or something. And they're like, you can't use those words around children. It's like, yeah. but this is a bar. So I think those are the only issues that I've ever heard of, like why people don't like the kids at taproom thing. For sure. And I think it's, it's a good point. You know, our son is not even a year old at this point. So he's, we're not in a position where, you know, we're concerned about what's going on around him. He's not really aware of it. I think it's incumbent when you're a parent to both understand where you're going and that there are some places that are not acceptable to take children, even if you legally can, um, or right. that you should at least be aware that they're not going to necessarily create the environment that you want your child in and, and decide whether that is something you want to do or not. And also respect the people who are not there with kids and don't necessarily want to be around kids. You know, I, I hate it both, you know, before I, I had a child and even now when people let their kids do whatever they want in restaurants yeah. and bars and, or in tap rooms. And, you know, again, it's, it's this whole thing where it's like, you can bring a child into this space, but if the child can't keep it an adult, you know, if, if if they ruin the environment for the adults who are there, like actually drinking beer, which you know, shocker is how this place makes money. You know, if they're right. taking away from the <laughs> from the paying customers' experience because they're running around or you know throwing pretzels at people or whatever, all of which I've seen, um, then you have to take them out and you have to decide. You know, choose to have kids. You know, you you take certain things off the table for yourself, and one of them is going wherever you want, whenever you want. And uh, to me, it's a, been a worthwhile trade-off so far. But I, I recognize that I won't get to do everything I want. So, um, you know. Exactly. Anyhow, we're talking beer, cool. so it's perfect. So we can move right into We are talking beer. That's why it's, it's the perfect segue, right? So um, we have, you know, senior staff writer Kat Walensky joining us today. And Kat, what's up? Hi, guys. Good to be back. <laughs> thanks for, Always thanks for joining us. Always great to have you. Zach likes you much more than me. Um, <laughs> no, so, I should clarify. Uh, I like you much more than I like Adam, not much more than yeah, Adam yeah. likes you. I got gotcha. you. So, um, <laughs> that's I mean, why I, I get my invitation. Yeah, you, exactly. You never come to the party. So <laughs> the biggest, so one of the conversations we've been having in the office that we talked about having on the podcast this week is, um, I've noticed this when I've been abroad, I think Kat and I talked about this, some other people as well. Um, and Zach, I think you and I may have talked about it when we were in Italy together as well. Um, so basically, you know, the United States in our drinking culture has really imported a lot of drinking trends, right? So, uh, 
both in the ways that we consume, but also like we imported the idea of the sommelier, right? That was a European creation that came to the US. Uh, we imported French and Italian grapevines, right? We make Merlot and Cabernet, and, you know, especially Cabernet and Napa, right? We uh, brought whiskey making traditions from Scotland and Ireland uh, to the American South and created bourbon. So we've imported a lot of things from the countries we all came from. And we didn't really export a lot of those traditions, those styles, until craft beer came along, right? And everyone, I think, in the beer world will recognize, correct me if I'm wrong, right? The majority of craft beer innovation came in, happened in America. I would say the recent innovations are American. Right. Things that are being emulated now in other countries. Right. And so what I think is interesting is that in these other countries, that's exactly what's happening. Is if you go to a craft brewery in Italy or France or even you know China, South Africa, Mexico, they're making American style craft beers, and that's always been really interesting to me because I've always wondered like, is that just because that's what craft beers become now? Is these styles like hazy IPAs, etc., or are we missing sort of like their own cultural? flavors, et cetera, and what those craft beers could be if they were making things, I don't know, that were more, I don't want to say authentic to where they are, but if they were, I don't know. So that's, that's sort of what we wanted to chat about today. What do you think? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to note that we first imported beer from other places, not just right, totally. literally the product, but you know, to give a little history overview, um, it Let's really started like, say, in the 1800s in the U.S., we had German and Czech immigrants. They were the first ones that came in and really started brewing as an industrial business. So we had these German and Czech loggers, pilsners mostly, for a long time. Then come the 1900s, that really spread across the country. Um, and then you had eventually pre and especially post-prohibition a few major companies that were all kind of competing to make this really similar light lager, the Budweiser's of the, of the world slash of the country. And where, where did that, where is that, is that like a, how did that happen? Where does that really come from? The light lager, the light lager. Yeah. It was just from these, these lager drinking nations. And okay. those are the brewmasters that came over. Um, and that's just what took off really. So that became kind of homogenous um, especially, like I mentioned, after Prohibition. And then eventually, say by like, I don't know, the 70s, then we started having imports. You know, people that cared about beer were seeking out beers that were actually imported from Germany or Belgium. Like that, before we really had a lot of craft beer made in the US, Belgian beer was the craft beer. Like a beer bar meant a Belgian beer bar. And like, this is the beer that blew people's minds. I mean, that's the first beer that I had that I was like, this is this is real beer. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like anyone who is of age as a beer drinker now, you know, like well into our journey of being beer lovers, I guarantee you like at least one of the beers that got, to into, got them into craft beer was Belgian. Um, and then... We started having breweries like Anchor Steam in California or Anchor Brewing and Brooklyn Brewery, like throughout the 70s and 80s, coast to coast, actual independent uh, craft brewery started to pop up. And is that just to cut you off? Is that when we were calling them microbrews? And they why were. were we calling them microbrews? Microbreweries, because they were macro breweries 
which are the industrial plants like the bud, the miller, or the cores. So micro brew just came out to mean like a smaller operation. And then even smaller than that is a nano brewery, which actually a lot of craft breweries are now technically. But this is when the craft beer revolution really started. And a big part of that was that American microbrewers figured out or became very interested in an ingredient that macro brewers didn't really highlight that much. And that is hops. So hops became craft beer. And Kat, I'm wondering, you know, we're talking about this sort of like world of, of, of how craft beer came to be a, a big thing in the United States and then trends have reached out to the rest of the world that were sort of originated here. And, and how much of that is because the U.S. is a huge hop-producing nation? I mean, I, I was thinking about what Adam was saying at the outset about how, you know, why are we not seeing, um, you know, in some of these other European countries, the, uh, you know, a sort of um, a, a, their own approach to craft beer. And, and it's it's been copied from, you know, a lot from the U.S. And I wonder if some of that is just because a lot of the material that goes into making these beers is coming from the U.S. Obviously, hops are grown in Europe as well, um, Germany principally. But, um, but you know, the, the U.S. is a huge hop-producing nation. And, and maybe that has something to do with um, that exporting of not just the raw ingredient, but then the style that goes along with it. For sure. So the hops are definitely a big part of it. Um, but just to kind of finish that timeline, I think what is happening really is like a cultural exchange. So first, American craft brewers were inspired by German breweries and Belgian breweries, etc. And then we kind of took these different beer styles, did the American thing and like made things really extreme, went into like a lot of different flavors. And now it's kind of going back the other way where brewers in other countries are inspired by American brewing traditions, which are very new, but like caught on very quickly. So yeah, anywhere you go when you're traveling, whether it's in Europe or Asia, et cetera, if you're looking for craft beer, you're going to find an IPA. And whether or not the hops are coming from the U.S., you know, it's they're going to have it on tap just to have an IPA on tap because that's kind of like what craft beer has become synonymous with. Do we know who made the first IPA and or who made it famous? Like who is the brewer that everyone was like, oh, my God, this is so good that I need to start hopping my beers like this, too? It kind of depends. Um, Anchor was sort of the first. They had a beer called Liberty Ale that was dry hopped. And that was like back in the 70s. But that was before people really talked about hops or dry hopping as being something cool and trendy. Um, I would say later on, like West Coast breweries like Stone and um, Green Flash, they made like really hoppy beers, IPAs and double IPAs, like bitter bombs, like wreck your palate, hoppy beers, really popular and really famous. Would you say, I mean, I always thought of Sierra Nevada as being, even though they didn't label it as an IPA. Oh, definitely. Like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, game-changing hoppy beer, but people weren't really like, it wasn't a fad yet. Yeah, You know, it's pretty much an IPA, but... It's a pale ale. <laughs> well, I think they didn't. Again, this this kind of comes back to that point, right? No one no one really knew what an IPA was, right? Um, unless you were really a beer nerd and, and really into the history of beer. Um, but yeah, I think there were there were a number of West Coast breweries. I think um, you know Red Hook here in, in the Seattle area uh, and their ESB, which was also not technically an IPA, but was you know leaned heavily into into local hops as a key part of the flavor. Was was for a lot of people in this area was the the beer that 
besides those Belgian beers that you alluded to, was the beer that changed a lot of people's perception of what beer could be with, again, that really kind of impressively hoppy bitterness that was a a total counter to macro lagers. Right. And now it's gone in this completely different direction with hazy, juicy, New England style IPAs. Um, And that's now what I see being emulated a lot in different countries is like the New England style IPA or the hazy IPA. And it's like, it's never quite what it is here, but they're just doing it to be trendy. Yeah. So I have a question. So when I've been abroad, I think I've, there've been certain countries I've been to where I've had really great craft style lagers that are really good, right? That I think are, are better versions of probably like the macro style lagers that are already in that country. So they're used to those flavor profiles and, you know, a brewery is just making, the macro version. I mean, the, the 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 micro version, if you will, of that of that macro style beer. But sometimes the the IPAs, the English style IPAs, aren't that great. And I'm wondering if that's just because of the same of like sometimes I think probably some winemakers or distillers would come over from Europe and say, well, some of our wines and spirits aren't that great compared to theirs. Is it just because they haven't been making them for that long yet? That they they haven't figured it out, like. <clears throat> Um, and are we, and am I being too harsh on them when I'm like, oh, this isn't that good. They should just make something else. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it is a lot to do with the time, time period. Like I recently interviewed a, uh, brewer and founder of like one of the first craft breweries in Germany, Braufactum, which is almost 10 years old now. And they released Germany's first ever IPA which is now, as of recently, just launched in cans which, in the U.S. Would that go against their beer purity laws? Um, a lot of their beers do. Do, okay. I mean, not. it's really like in Bavaria where brewers are still following the Reinheitsgebot. Um, but I think most brewers aren't really... They're just like, screw it. Like taking it that seriously. <laughs> so this brewer I spoke to, his name is Mark. Um, he's He kind of explained to me like where they are now with the craft movement in Germany is sort of like the nineties here. So he has been introducing people to this concept, like, and it's all happening. Like we it sort of happened gradually in the U S over like decades. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of trying to do it all at once. So like they launched their brewery, they have an IPA, they have a barley wine, they have a smoked beer. Like they're doing all these crazy things And then they realized it was too much for the consumer. Like they didn't understand. They couldn't handle it. These were like such intense, crazy flavors. So they sort of had to pull back and like roll things out more slowly. So they started with um, a dry hopped Kolsch because Germans are familiar with the Kolsch style. Then they moved into a pale ale and like eventually worked their way to this IPA. And now it's something that, you know, people want and are seeking out and like other German brewers are are brewing. Um, but I thought it was really interesting because it's, we've talked about this too, is like, what is craft beer in Germany? <laughs> because right. here in the U S our craft beer movement was a reaction to this like homogenized industrial flavorless lager. Um, and people were like seeking out flavor, more like flavor experiences and different colors and scents. And like, that's what the exploration and experimentation really stemmed from. Whereas like, German beer's always been really good. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're trying to copy their lagers. So like now they're trying to copy our beer and it's like, do they need to? I don't know. Right. Like it's, it's the same. Like you see now craft beer in Belgium 
And as we were saying at the beginning, Belgian beer has always been really good. And so does it, is there as much of a necessity? Whereas I would say like maybe in Italy, there's some need for craft beer. This I mean, <laughs> Peroni is not that great, but um, yeah. And some brewers that I've met in Greece have said the same thing. Like they don't really have a strong beer culture. So craft beer is able to, cause there was really, you know, a few, you know, basically lagers that are Budweiser-esque and that's about it. Um, but yeah, that is curious. And it, I'm, Zach, I'm curious if, if you're seeing the same, you know, correlation I am in terms of the the relationship to wine. It just, it's, it's so similar in that I feel like, you know, we in the same way sort of went really crazy fast in the 80s and 90s into trying to, you know, make exact copies of wines from Europe and I think all of a sudden it started to pull back and say, huh, maybe those vines didn't fit in this area just because I wanted to try to make, you know, a Chablis style Chardonnay, or maybe the public isn't ready for this kind of flavor profile. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think that's really an, an interesting question. I think what we're seeing is, um, as you know, as I think Kat kind of alluded to earlier, we live in this world now where it's very easy for all of these, um, for this ex- you know, sort of cultural exchange of ideas and concepts to, to happen. And, and, you know, the the brewers in the, my understanding, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, who were interested in sort of, you know, bringing these, Amer- uh, sorry, these European beer styles to America, or, and or then, you know, eventually innovating on them, you know, if you wanted to learn about it initially, you kind of had to go to Europe. You had to, you know, maybe you could taste, you could certainly get some of the stuff imported, but a lot of those beers weren't available in the U.S. or maybe only in a couple of markets and, and you know, in small quantities. You know, to learn about the world of beer in Europe, you had to go to Europe in the same way that if you were a winemaker uh, at a certain point in American history who wanted to learn about making wine in a European style, you had to go there. And then it became, you know, common enough here that you could learn from someone who had learned in Europe, and then you could learn from someone who had learned from someone in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And now, you know, you don't ever have to go kind of do that um, pilgrimage such as it is. And and I think you see kind of the same thing in reverse with with beer in Europe, where, where you are just now starting to see, you know, sort of some of these um, people who are influenced by styles in um in the U.S., uh, but are not necessarily directly trying to copy them. I, I was at a. I'm like, I wish I could remember where the town was. It was. Um, it was uh, on the uh, Adriatic coast in Italy, and I was surprised because it was a. It was a beer bar, and um, a craft beer bar, and and focused on some local breweries or a couple of them in the area, um, <clears throat> and they were really interesting because you could tell that they were you know aware of what these sort of beer styles were in the U.S. and in this bar did have some American, you know, a fair bit of American craft beer. But at the same time, you know, there was this real sensibility of, you know, we are going to, we're going to make this like Italians, you know, it, it had, it had a little bit lower alcohol um, than some of the co- corresponding styles that you would see in uh, American beers. Um, and it was, a, they were a little less, you know, they were, kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word, they're kind of a little more um, balanced in certain ways, you know, even the IPAs were kind of a little more restrained. And I, and so I do think that, you know, while you are seeing some sort of top level copying of mm-hmm. styles and approaches, you, I think you were already starting to see a few places where, where there's a longer brewing history um, of embracing craft beer, even if it's only 10, 15, 20 years old, where they are starting to kind of, you know, go in their own direction a little bit. And I think, you know, I, I wish I knew more about sort of brewing outside of Europe and in some of the rest of the world and, and whether that was happening as well. Because, you know, my only other experience with craft beer outside of the U.S. Uh, that's not in Europe was down in South America. And it was even interesting there in Colombia a few years ago, you could see, um, you know, a, a, a real emphasis on 
beers with fruit adjuncts, I mean, makes sense. There's incredible fruit there to work with. And, and it was a bigger part of the scene than um, than I would have expected or than you would see in a craft brewery, you know, in the U.S. typically. So um, to come back to your question, I'm sorry, I kind of got off on a tangent there. Uh, <laughs> I, you did. I think there's uh, I think there is definitely okay, something. You music. <laughs> there's something uh, there's definitely something to be said about, um, you know, people recognizing that when you just wholesale copy a style, whether it's in wine or beer or spirits um, from another place that you, you are really boxing yourself in because you are, you are copying a thing which inevitably becomes pretty available. And, and part of what I think is will happen and is happening with craft beer is as craft beer takes off in Europe or other parts of the world, you will see more and more American craft beer in the market uh, as it already is. And, and people will realize, well, in the same way that if I love, you know, if I'm interested in French wine, I'd ra- I can drink French wine. I don't need a American winemakers take on a French wine for the most part. And I'd rather see American winemakers focus on making wines that are, you know, more reflective of their place, their sensibilities, because you know what, you can try and make a wine in the style of Chablis, but you're not in Chablis. You probably don't have a soil particularly like Chablis because we don't have a lot of Kimmeridgean marl hanging out in California or, you know, uh, the you know other parts of the U.S. and so you kind of have to work with what you've got, and I think you know that's that's my guess as to where you will see craft beer go, where mm. you 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 end up with styles that are recognizably related, but are hopefully distinct. You know that's part of the fun of all this yeah. is to see you know different places, different. Uh, brewers or winemakers, you know, riff on the same general idea uh, in the same way that food has done this. You know, you see you see this really fascinating thing happen with cuisine where when you travel to, you know, sushi fusion, in France yeah. is different. Well, it's not, but not exactly fusion. It's more like, you know, it's more like sushi in, in France, which is a huge thing there now. Sushi in Paris is different than sushi in Los Angeles, you know, as it should be. Those two, right. those two things, and as it is, I imagine, in Japan, a place I have not had it. But, I would like to you know, have those, it there. <laughs> yeah, well, we can let's let's plan a sake Japan, episode yeah. and we'll get out there. Um, but you know, the point is that it, it, these things should be recognizably related, but still different because I don't need every place on earth to make the exact same beer, and I don't think Cat does either. That's true. Um, <laughs> speaking of Japan, that's a really interesting example of a beer scene that is not talked about a lot, but that I love. Um, it's the best. It's cool. I mean, Japan's really good at everything (laughs) and a lot of things in food and drink. Um, But I was there a couple of years ago and I kind of plan all my travel around beer and seek it out wherever I go. Big surprise. And, uh, you know, people don't really talk about beer in Tokyo that much. And like, you won't really, there aren't breweries there. Um, You won't see like, it's not obvious that, there's a beer culture, but if you look for it, it's there. And I went to like a, a bunch of really cool beer bars there and it ranged from a few that were like very American inspired. Um, most of them would have like international taps. You'd see the Brooklyn breweries and the Firestone walkers, but then also like they'd have a good amount of local um, breweries like from Kyoto and other areas of Japan. And um, there's like a big Scandinavian influence. So there's like a McKellar bar in Tokyo. And there's another one called um, Ol, which is owned by a, one of the Nordic breweries. I forget which one now. Um, but they had a lot of like different, um, like a mix of US and European and Japanese beers there. 
And then if you kind of like go searching and can get out to a brewery, which is more like in the suburbs, um, you'll see like Mino Beer is a really big brand there um, outside Osaka. And they are really doing bespoke things. Like they're making double IPAs and stouts, but then they're also like brewing a beer with yuzu or even local peaches. And um, I saw the same thing in China. Like you go to this little tiny brewery in the middle of like an alleyway in Beijing and they have an IPA and they have a sour and they have like anything we'd be looking for here, but then maybe something is brewed with Chinese plums or like there's a slight tweak on something that, you know, does make it different. Like it's not just brewers copying uh, American traditions. It's like everyone does have their own interpretation and, and it's like, it's certainly still interesting to see these things in other cultures. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I think that's also uh, super cool about beer. The only, the only style I guess that would be kind of hard to not copy if you were trying to expose your market to the style would be like a, you know, a dry hopped IPA, right? Cause it'd be really hard to ship those from the U S just because like at that point, right. If the whole idea is they have to be fresh, the only way to experience that style is to figure out how to brew it yourself and give it to people as well. Right. I mean, or else you're going to drink a, no. a super alcohol bomb. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I'm seeing both happening. I mean, craft brewer exports are increasing. I think it was like 8% uh, last year. And a lot of what you always hear is like IPAs and things won't stay fresh if you're shipping them to different countries. Mm-hmm. But now some breweries are actually cold shipping their beers, like even – small breweries like industrial arts in uh, New York. Really? Yeah. They're one of our vine pair top brewery picks. And they, although they pretty much are only distributing in New York state, it's like New York and then Japan. They're in Japan. If mm. they're not yet, then they are going to be soon. That is crazy. Yeah. Why Japan? Like, do you know? Uh, Cause they get a lot of love from Japanese people. That's awesome. Yeah. I listened to Jeff O'Neill, the, the owner he was on another podcast recently saying like they get crazy love on Instagram and like around the internet from Japanese consumers. So they're like, all right, <laughs> I guess we'll send our beer there and like try to make sure it stays fresh. That's amazing. There is definitely a lot of beer tourism from Japan and China to some extent, but more from Japan in the Seattle area. It's oh, yeah? actually pretty interesting. I've talked to a couple. Yeah. Talked to a couple of, uh, of, um, of brewers here who, who have seen over the last couple of years, an, an influx of people who, if not, coming specifically for that reason are definitely seeking out some of the better known breweries here and actually some of the newer ones too um and and coming in to try the beers um as a part of their visit if not you know the centerpiece of it so it's definitely again you know the global reach of of every product now because of the internet because of instagram etc you know it's not a secret to people you know you can find out very quickly um you know whether we're traveling abroad somewhere and we want to know what are the best places to go the best breweries to check out whatever same thing happening with people coming here and and that's where this sort of cultural exchange happens i think and it's really cool it, and it creates for certainly for those breweries um a market eventually um back in japan or china or or wherever else people are coming from um which is i think also something that they are very uh, excited about uh, if they're able to create you know sufficient demand to yeah pay to <laughs> for the refrigerated shipping container because uh, those ain't cheap. I think it's super cool. I mean, I think the one thing I think American Craft Brew did, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kat, is to sort of bring this conversation to a close is one of the things I think it really did, which is really amazing, is I think it helped show a lot of people that this is a potential career and that 
whether it's, you know, you came from a country in which you had an established brewing scene or you didn't, I think even those countries where there were established brewing scenes, they were still breweries that had been open for a very long time that were either family businesses or were larger companies. And this, the whole craft movement from America sort of showed people that like I could go to college, you know, get a brewer's degree or something, and then just open my own, which I think is really what America craft beer has truly become, which is that anyone can brew who can, you know, thinks they have a recipe that's good enough that people will pay for and that can, you know, figure out how to open a business, which I think is super exciting and why it's still growing here and why it will continue to grow across the world. Absolutely. I mean, it's sparked the entrepreneurial spirit in a lot of people here. I mean, any so many brewers you'll talk to had previous careers or didn't think they'd end up doing this and then it became a viable option. I'm not saying it's easy to start a brewery <laughs> or make this your <laughs> life, but it is definitely a, a lot more common of a profession now than it was five or 10 or 20 years ago. So awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and chatting with us a little bit about the world of international craft beer. Of course. Always happy yeah, to talk about Come beer. drink some beer with me in Seattle. I know. I have to visit. You've been? You've been? I haven't been. What? I've never been yeah, to Seattle. It's fine. I heard there's nothing that good there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Zach, I will see you right back here next week. Thank you all so much for listening. Drop us a line at podcastatvinepair.com. Let us know what you think. And uh, we'll see you back here again next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.